right. Great. Well, turn, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you haven't got a Bible, that's fine. It's very awkward for you to turn there, but I'll be reading it anyway. But if you have, pull it out. In four weeks' time at Sovereign Grace, we're going to be starting a new series called For the Common Good. And the whole situation there is I already want to spend five weeks um, looking at, at the spiritual gifts, what they are, how they operate, the dangers of them, uh, but also how we should pursue them. So we're going to look at healing, we're going to look at prophecy, but we're also going to look even just bigger than that of how the spiritual gifts even work and should they be something that we pursue? Because Paul talks about eagerly desiring them. So how does that actually operate in the context of a local church, particularly the gathered church? So that starts in four weeks' time. And for the next three weeks, though, I'm keen for us to return to the series we did on Sanctifying the Ordinary. Different titles, but same idea. So three weeks' time, we're going to be looking at fatherhood, which is going to be on Father's Day. So if you've got dads, rather than all leave us and go be with your dads, maybe invite your dads to come and hear about fathering, and let's use that as a morning to bless them through God's word. Also, next week, I'm going to be speaking on, on singleness. I'm aware that a third of our church at Sovereign Grace are single. And every year we teach on fathering, every year we teach on mothering, and yet we've never actually addressed singleness. And seeing that Ben Wood is single and advertised it today, <laughs> we should at least address what does God's word have to say about singleness. But today I want to speak on, I want to speak on giving. And to be honest, as I speak on giving, I, there is always a degree of caution in my heart. Out of all the things that I enjoy preaching on, and out of all the things that I feel called by God to preach on as we bring the whole counsel of God to bear in a congregation, giving is my least favourite because you can so easily be misconstrued, you can so easily appear that you're just after gain. It's one of those very difficult topics. And yet the reality is we need to preach and teach on it because the Bible teaches on it. And so this is just a pastor trying to care for his flock. It's a guy trying to care and particularly in our midst, understanding that Jesus spent 15% of his words in the Bible recorded for us on the issue of money. Well, we need to be spending time then on that. And how much more do we need to be spending time on it in Sydney, given our wealth here? So we're going to be looking together at this part of Scripture. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus gathering his disciples together on a Galilean mountainside. And in verse 19 through to the verse 24, this is what the Saviour says to them. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, 
as we gather around this sermon that your son gave on the mountainside of Galilee. Oh Lord, would you bring it alive to us afresh? Would it be as if we are there? Lord, would you do things that no preacher can do? Would you speak your words today? Would you impact our hearts where they've become calloused, where they need to be encouraged and quickened? Lord, would you do your mighty work? And as I re-speak your word, would it come powerfully into our hearts and minds? Lord, have your way amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in the Bible, there are many reasons given to us of why giving is important and why it should be something to treasure. In the letters, we see how giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to help build the church, to actually build local churches for the glory of the Lord. Places where we can help people know the gospel, places where we can help people apply the gospel by building context to care and to actually do life together. And by God's grace, places where people can come and hear about Jesus and come to know Jesus and then actually get discipled in the local church for the glory of the Lord. Churches are just so important biblically as a place where God dwells. And so giving enables us to play a part in building that local church to ensure that pastors are actually employed, that structures can actually be done, that evangelism events can be, can be actually structured and take place, that can actually have buildings to meet in and so on and so forth. Giving also, as biblically defined in Acts, gives us a God-given opportunity to help the poor and those in need. That's what we see, and we will see that as one of the themes in Acts when we get onto that. People come with their money, they lay it at the apostles' feet, which ultimately were effectively the pastors at the time, and then those pastors and elders were discerning, how can we help then those in need? How can we send money out? That's why in Sovereign Grace we have a help fund, and it's something we've always done for the last three years. At the moment, we actually have around $19,000 go through our help fund a year, and that's to support people in this church. There are those in need and need actually to be helped. And increasingly we're looking outside of that, outside of ourselves, where can we help people abroad? One of the options at the moment is in the Philippines. We're just looking at, Lord, where would you have us invest our time and our energy and our finances for your glory? Giving gives us a wonderful opportunity to do that and to help those that are generally in need and are poor. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read that giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to do something that God loves. For God loves a cheerful giver. Usually this is where people think, great, that means I don't have to give. Why is that? Because I'm never happy about it. Now that's not the point of that text. The point is God loves a cheerful giver and therefore we need to address our hearts to realign with what God talks about, which is giving, and why we give, which then will stir our hearts to be joyful about it. We should prick our ears up when we read things like 2 Corinthians 9. Because if it's true that we have an opportunity in our lives to do something that God loves, then why would we not do that? This is something that he delights in. And in Matthew chapter 6, today's text, what we realise is this, that giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to point our hearts to things above. Giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to point our hearts to things above. And so if you want a title for this morning's message, I've simply called it, It Ain't Just the Money. Because it ain't. The Bible doesn't present it as just about finances. 
the Bible makes it very clear that our hearts and our finances are linked. So it isn't just about the money. God does more when we give than just about money. See, there's no question that in life and in culture, evidence throughout the Bible and in history, that a person's treasures are intrinsically linked to their hearts. And we see that all the way through. So if you examine the Bible, in Joshua chapter 7, there's a guy called Achan. He's a soldier from the tribe of Judah. And single-handedly, he caused defeat for the Israelite army at Ai and suffered death himself. Why? Well, because God had specifically instructed this army, do not take anything from Jericho. Well, Achan fancied a few things. So he nicked a few things, took them with them, and God rebuked the army and they lost the war. His heart coveted stuff, even though God had said no. And it caused great destruction to this army. When you get to the book of Kings and you see King Solomon, King David's son, he became a great king. He was a wonderful man. He was so wise in his years. And what he gave himself to and wrote down for us is such clarity and such wisdom. The challenge is he struggled to actually listen to it himself. His heart coveted two things in particular. It coveted women and it coveted money. And as a result, King Solomon's spiritual life and love for the Lord completely declined. He, he shipwrecked his life as he gave himself to money and to women. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They sell a piece of land because they want to give it to the poor. They want to give it to the church and see the church go forward, particularly through helping the poor. And so they sell their land and they decide by themselves they want to give all of it to the church. The problem is, after selling it, they realised how much money it was and decided we quite fancy keeping a bit for ourselves, to be honest. And so they come in with the money and they actually say, you know, is this all of it? And they say, oh, oh yes. They lied because they were coveting money so much. Yes, this is all of it. It wasn't all of it. God struck them down and they were killed in that moment. Our hearts and our treasures are intrinsically linked all the way through the Bible. And we see it in modern day society as well. In 1929, with the Great Wall Street crash, there were many, many tens of men in particular that committed suicide as a result of that. They lost their fortune, they lost their wealth, they lost their contacts. And because their hearts and their finances are so intrinsically linked, they realised if I don't have money, my life's not worth living. And so there was a massive increase in suicide amongst those that were actually financial stockbrokers and the like. The same happened in 2008 with the GFC. The global financial crisis hit and across the world, particularly in America and Britain, many, many financially wealthy people started to commit suicide. One guy actually realised that he wasn't going to get a job with the new company that were taking over, so he took a drug overdose and then jumped off the 24th floor of his building. Because he realised, my life's not worth living. If I haven't got wealth, what's the point? All the way through the Bible and all the way through history, our hearts and our treasures are intrinsically linked. And so how kind then of the Saviour to pull us together as a local church and to sit us down on a Galilean mountaintop and start to talk to us about this great challenge. This is pastoral care. This is the Saviour himself looking each one of us in our eyes and saying, I want to talk to you about your treasures because your treasures are so linked with your heart. 
So I want to talk to you about them. I want to care for you in them. And the point that he makes is simply this. Giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to point our hearts to things above. Now, if we're going to grasp and enjoy this today, I'm going to really need you to think with me. So this is not the morning where you think, I'm a little bit tired and I might doze off after about 10 minutes. You're going to be in a, in a, in a lot of trouble if you do that because you are not going to track with me and you're going to get very confused and very lost with me. You're going to have to think. And so this morning is really going to be a journey. As we start to examine this scripture, it'll only be point four that really brings it all together. The first three points are all building to it. And so we know where we're going. We want to see that giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to point our house to things above. But how did we get that from this text? It's dead simple, but you've got to track with me. So here's point one, point one of four points. Number one, God wants our hearts. Look at verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, it's a conclusion of the last statement he's made, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So many people think that this point is all about heaven. Not really. It's actually primarily about our hearts. It's our hearts that he's going after. And so as a very bedrock of understanding this text, we have to understand that God wants our hearts. Now, what are our hearts? Is it just the flesh in our body that is pumping? Well, obviously not, and we know that. But what exactly is it? Well, that's where we have to go to Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is a genius on this stuff. He says as follows. The Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts, the inner and the outer being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. The synonym the Bible most often uses for the inner being is the heart. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person. So spirit, soul, mind emotions, will, and so forth. These other terms do not describe something different from the heart. Rather, they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. The heart, then, is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Though we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the outer person, we must always remember that the true person is the person within So our hearts, he says, which I think wonderfully, is the inner person. It's the spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will, and so forth of the person. It's what makes us us. What makes you you is your heart. So when we say, oh, you know what, I've so enjoyed getting to know this person, what you do not mean is I've so enjoyed getting to know their arm. Their arm is just so beautiful. Their nose, it just moves me. we, We never mean that. What we mean is their heart. We mean I've so enjoyed getting to know them, who they really are, their passions, their will, their spirit, their their essence, what they're really about, their emotions, what makes them tick. Well, the Bible calls that our hearts. It's the true person within. And it's no surprise then when you see that, that God wants our hearts, that he wants the inner person, that he wants who we really are. Our entire being has been made by God. You have been knitted together in your mother's womb. The psalmist tells us that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And so it is not surprising that God wants our hearts. He wants our entire being. The very fact that in your life you have been made by God, 
ultimately for God, only makes sense when we include God in the equation. You see, that desire that you have in your heart for identity, to know really who you are, that's God-given because it's an aspect of worship. To know who you really are and every human being longs to know who really am I. God gave you that because ultimately we're meant to find our desire in him in that which would bring glory to his name. That desire for purpose, to know what you're really to give yourself to in your life. What, what is life really actually about? The question of life. It's an act of worship because we're meant to find that in God himself. That's why he put it there in our hearts in the first place. And as we find it in God, our purpose in him, realizing I am to live for his glory, it brings worship to him. That desire for security that we all have, to know how am I going to make it, God gave you that desire ultimately to find in him that he would be our security that as we walk through our lives, we would we'd throw ourselves on him, which in effect brings glory to him as we point people ever increasingly to him. Look who holds me. That desire for joy in your heart, hedonism ultimately, it's not a bad thing. I'm a Christian hedonist. That desire for joy is a good thing. It is a God-given thing. But it was meant to be found in him. We were meant to find him and then be so blown away by him that we find our joy in him that does indeed bring glory to him. God made us and he made us for him. And so one would assume that 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ rocked up and he starts telling people about himself and he starts preaching the gospel of reconciliation and he starts shouting into the crowds that come to me and you'll find rest. What he's saying throughout his ministry is, listen, come to me, put your faith in me and you will once again have access to the garden. You will once again have access to come back to the one who made you. You will once again have access in security and identity and purpose and joy to know what your life was always all about, namely God the Father himself. So come to me. One would assume when Jesus started preaching that, given human desires, that everybody would go, Thank goodness you came. My life makes sense now. As you explain this, I I get it. I find purpose in God and identity in God. I know who I am. I know how I got here and where I'm going. Thank you for coming. But they didn't. They rejected him. And Paul writes about that in Romans 1. He explains how mankind had already exchanged the creator for the created. Yes, everybody still had the craving to find security and identity and purpose and joy. There was a hole in that. There was a worship in that. But they didn't want to find that in the Creator. They wanted to find that in the Created. The stuff they could see. Their money. Their families. Their children. Their land. Their property. There had been a great exchange taking place. So even so Jesus is preaching the gospel and preaching what it's all about, people rejected him. There was a battle going on ultimately in everybody's hearts. And as the battle resumed, they rejected the creator. They rejected the Christ. And they exchanged him for the creator, for the created. You know, as Christians, here's the reality. That battle that goes on in our hearts between creator and created, even as a Christian, still goes on, doesn't it? It's still there. 
We go to a weekend away and we come away just thinking, I want my whole life to be about Jesus. Man, I am in everything. You could take it all. And then you go to sleep and you get up in your own home the next day and a whole load of other things start piling in. And a whole load of the created starts looking pretty good, pretty quick. And we start to be attracted by that. Why is that? That's because of point two. Number two, the fact that our hearts are idol factories. John Calvin said it first. He just said it simply that way, that our hearts are idol factories. And they are. You know, many people think of idols as golden calves and things of that nature that we bow down to and worship. And in some parts of the world, that's still true. If we went to India, you would find that they do have small statues and they'll actually, they'll actually sort of look after them like children. So they will wash them, they'll try and feed them. I suppose that's really embarrassing <laughs> when they're dribbling. But they will actually try and you know, look after these sort of children that they, they've made, these idols, and worship them as idols. If we went to Bali, we'd all be trying to, they'd all be trying to sell us little statues that they've prayed over and stuff because this is idol worship for them. It is actually things. It's objects. But most of the Bible doesn't address those idols. Most of the Bible, within its context, is talking about an idol worship, which is heart idols. Idols that have been erected in our hearts and then worshipped because we perceive them or at least hope them to be a source of identity and purpose, and security, and joy. That's what the Bible calls heart idols. Things that we look to, rather than the creator, that have been created, that we think, if I just have that, I will be fine. And I want Jesus, but I want that as well. We can find our security in it, and our identity, and our purpose, and our joy in something other than Christ. That's what a heart idol is. We see it in the book of Ezekiel. Some of the elders talk to, uh, of Israel come to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 14 and they have some questions for Ezekiel. They want to draw him out on some stuff. And in verse 1 of chapter 14, you don't need to go there, but this is what he says. It says, Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, when any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture their hearts, the hearts of the people of Israel, who have all deserted me for their idols. The elders rock up. They want to talk to Ezekiel about some things they've got to share with God. Well, God's got some questions for them in terms of, guys, what is going on with your hearts? What is going on with the things that you are setting up in front of your face so that you can barely see me? That's what the Bible talks about. They're called heart idols, And the truth is, we still struggle with them today, don't we? We do. Welcome to being a Christian. If you're a Christian and you don't struggle with idolatry, you're probably dead. The rest of us are struggling, to some degree, with idolatry. Things that subtly start to put things in the way of our lives. And they are subtle, which sometimes makes it so hard to see them. 
But these idols of the heart still affect us today and they lure us and they tempt us away still to the moment. The desire for a spouse, is it a wrong desire? No, of course not. The man who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It's a good thing. But the moment that that desire becomes a craving and a consuming passion and we just think, you know what, I feel just, I'm not even, I don't, I'm only half human. If just I was married, I'd have a security. I'd have a purpose. I'd know what I was meant to be doing in my life. And suddenly that desire for a spouse has gone from just being a desire to now it's an idol. It becomes, if I don't have this, what is the point of going on? I look at all these other people, they're way happier than I am and I can't possibly be happy like them without having a spouse. That's idolatry. Because we think if only we have that, we'd be able to find our identity and our security and our purpose and joy in that other than God. You see how it works? The desire for children. It's a good desire. Children are a blessing from the Lord. But the moment we find out that we can't have children or there's challenges in having children and then we start to realise or at least think in our minds incorrectly, well, what is the point then? You know, I desire to have children. I've got a fatherly instinct or a motherly instinct towards them. I see other people having children. What's the problem with this? I could not possibly be complete in my life without this. If God really loved me, surely he would give me this. Why is he keeping this from me? You know what, I can never really find joy without this. Uh, In that moment, it's become an idol. It's become something we're worshipping other than God himself, something we're finding our security in as a source of joy and purpose other than God himself. The desire to be healthy, it's not a bad one. I'm an athlete myself. The desire, (laughs) for those of you that know my eating habits, you're like, no, you're not. That desire to be healthy, it it isn't a bad desire. But the moment that we feel a lump somewhere where it shouldn't be, or we start to feel sick and panic comes into our lives, and we are onto the phone to the doctor faster than anything we've done in our lives, probably indicates that desire for health has become an idol. Because there's a raging fear when we think that that idol might be removed, that I won't be healthy. What am I going to do? How can I cope? Well, is your security in health? Because if your security is in health, then health has become an idol. Security needs to be in Christ and Christ alone. That desire for comfort, we all have it. And, and rest is a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing to have in our lives rest before the Lord. It's a good thing. God rested on the seventh day. But when that idol of comfort gets so big that when the rubber hits the road, it, we, we can't imagine doing anything today. The fact of Jeff Perswell says that it would be good to serve other people and we hear the gospel message, we think, yeah, we so should. But then the next day somebody asks us, is there any chance you could help me with this? And you think, oh, I'm very tired. You know, what's going on there? It's the idol of comfort. I want this as my identity and security. I want Jesus, but I want comfort as well. The desire for career, for achievement, for education, for role. The list goes on. Not bad desires. But when they start to drive everything we do, they become idols. And they're everywhere. They're not out there. They're in here. They're in our hearts. They're battling within and... The idol then that the Saviour puts right at the top of that list, you know what it is? The idol that he says he's most concerned about, which is why he spends 15% of his time talking about it, 
It's not pride, it's not role, it's not health, it's not family, it's money. He's aware of how much this can grip our hearts, how much our treasures can start to be things that we set up in front of our face and he's in the distance. And so he addresses us on it. And so point three, which is really where we get into this text, the idol of money. You know, I'd have to say in my life, as I looked at this this week, I, I was freshly sobered by it. And here's why I was freshly sobered by it. If it's true, which it is, that 15% of the Saviour's recorded teaching is on money, here was my thinking. If that's true to a bunch of Israelites who were predominantly poor 2,000 years ago, how much more would he be shouting it to us in Sydney today? One of the wealthiest countries in the world, literally. I came from England. We were all in recession. I just sold my house in the UK last week. It's great. Sold it for quite a lot less than I bought it for. It's in recession. Not so in Australia. Here I'm going to be trying to buy a house that's increased quite a lot in the last few years. Wealthiest country. One of the wealthiest countries in the world. The wealthiest city of one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And some of the wealthiest suburbs of the wealthiest city of one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We need to be sobered then when we come across this. Because I think one of the tricks of our own hearts, given the nature of indwelling sin, is we come across this and think, you know what, this is so helpful. I don't think it applies to us though, because we're not that wealthy. As biblically defined, when you, when you read the word rich in scripture, you must understand that's addressing us. We are definitely those. We are the rich man. By a long, long way. And so I was just sobered by that, thinking this, if this was important for them 2,000 years ago, how much more do we need to hear it today? Given the fact of where we live and where we are doing life. If the Saviour was concerned with the idol of money for these guys, how much more would he be looking us in our eyes and saying, guys, for you... This is really important because you are the rich young man. This is really important for you because you are the wealthy. And in verses 22 through 24 then, Jesus himself warns us away from the idolatry of money by giving us two very clear and stark warnings. Number one, he explains to us that the idolization of money will cloud our view of life. If you idolise money and treasures, you're going to stop seeing life clearly. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says it this way. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, the first time you read that, if you're anything like me, you think, what on earth is he on about? What has that got to do with, with money? What has it got to do with what he's just shared? Well, the emphasis is still on heart, and he's trying to give us this, this picture now of how our heart works. And the, the key to really understanding the text is a healthy eye is one that is absorbed by God, who loves the Saviour and who loves God. That's a healthy eye. A bad eye is an individual who's absorbed with money. That's how it's set up. Good eye, 
absorbed with God. Bad eye, absorbed with money. William Barclay, the theologian, says it this way to help us. He says, the idea behind this passage is one of a childlike simplicity. The eye is regarded as the window by which the light gets into the whole body. The colour and state of a window decide what light gets into a room. If the window is clear, clean and undistorted, the light will come flooding into the room and will illuminate every corner of it. But if the glass of the window is coloured or frosted, distorted, dirty or obscure, the light will be hindered and the room will not be lit up. So then, listen, the light which gets into any man's heart and soul and being depends on the spiritual state of the eye through which it has to pass. For the eye is the window of the whole body. So what he's saying is this, if you idolise money, that's a bad eye. And your view of life will start to get very clouded. You won't be able to see things clearly anymore. But if you have a love for God in your life, and you refuse to idolise money, you will have a good view of life. And you will see things and enjoy things and have a purpose and security in things as you see my whole life is Jesus. And you will escape the idolatry of money. But if you don't do that, you will fail to see life clearly. (coughs) Because money will cloud your view of life. Folks, it's true. I've been a pastor for 13 years. That's not a long time. But it's long enough to have seen the fruit of what he's talking about here. So you might encounter a young man who loves the Lord and is generally passionate about the Lord and they want to give their whole lives away for Jesus. They want to serve him passionately. They understand that ultimately their whole lives are about him. They want to help build the church. They want to invest their lives and give themselves to seeing churches being built for the glory of the Lord and take the gospel and brandish it and take it out and beyond. They are passionate young men. And then they meet this girl. And she's a nice girl. She loves the Lord too. And he finally says, you know what, Dave, here's the challenge. I live in Sydney. Have you seen how expensive the prices of these houses are? So I'm going to start working six days a week because it's the only way I can make this work. He's still passionate about the Lord though. And so he starts to work all these days and he's starting to save it for a deposit. And you're aware that this dude's not giving, but you talk to him about it, but he can't give apparently because he's trying to save up for this deposit on the house. Because he he loves this girl and he wants to marry this girl and she loves him. So they get engaged and then they have kids. And he says, you know what, Dave, I'm sorry I haven't been to church for a while and I know I'm still not giving because we're paying off the house that I was saving up for in the first place. But, but I'm sure it's going to come in time. But in the meantime, we really feel the Lord's put on our heart to send our children to private Christian school and that's going to cost a lot of money. But, you know, the Bible talks about loving our children. We think that's the best thing to do by a long way. So we don't plan on giving for the next seven years, but we love the church and we love what you're doing and we love Jesus. And so off they go and they do that and they put their kids in, in, in Christian school. The Christian school doesn't work out for them so they go into secular school because it's better education and if they're going to live in Sydney one day they're going to need a good education because they're going to have high prices. So these kids go to that school and, and lo and behold you chat to these people sometimes in their 50s and their 60s, sometimes in their 70s and I kid you not, here's what happens. Usually mum or dad or both are weeping with you. And as you inquire as to why 
The reason is they realize their kids had it all. They had a great education. They had all their stuff. They had holidays, but none of them loved the Lord. And they're quite estranged from their mum and dad too. And they realize when I was 18, 19, 20, all I wanted was to serve Jesus. Where did I go? You know what, friends? That is the power of the idolization of money. Identity, security and purpose. My family has got to have this. Okay. Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't. I just feel it. Okay. But our feelings can deceive us. And when you live in the wealthiest country, in the wealthiest city, in the wealthiest suburb, we need to be on red alert to the idolization of our heart feeling thing. My friends, I don't want anybody in Sovereign Grace Church, I don't want anybody coming to me when they're older saying, what happened? Where did I go? I had a life, but it seemed clouded. I never achieved the things that I wanted to do when I was young. I don't want to have to say to anybody, where do you think money played a part in that maybe? I don't want you to walk through lives clouded. I want us to see clearly I want us to see that it is all about Jesus and be sold out for Jesus. And our hearts, our treasures are so linked. So right here he explains to us then, don't idolise money. Because if you do that it will cloud your view. But that's not all. The idolisation of money, number two, will also make it impossible to serve God as king. We see that in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Do you hear that? Do you feel addressed by God in this moment? Because you should. This is you. He is addressing you. He is looking at you in your eyes. You are not excluded from this verse in this moment. He is looking at you as his disciple and saying, no one, (laughs) no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and money. My friends, you cannot. It is impossible. Sometimes we like to think we can. You cannot. Jesus said it. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says it. And yet we like to think we can, listen to this, because we are great compromisers. How sobering and challenging is that? Well, God, I have two children and I can serve both of them. And I have two jobs, I have two employers and I can serve both of them. So I reckon I could probably serve two masters. I reckon I could be about money and God. And Jesus looks back at you and says, no, you cannot. You cannot. You've got to choose. It's one or the other, but it will never be both. Tim Keller continues, God should be our only Lord and Master, but in fact, whatever we love and trust, we also serve. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. And it is those idols that can then control us. 
Since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless, idols dominate our lives. Idols are so subtle, aren't they? They don't flash at us. They don't come at us with loud sirens saying, beware of me, I'm an idol. They come at us and say, you'll be alright. Everybody's got this, right? All your friends got this, it's fine. They are so subtle. And money in and of itself is a God-given gift. God has given us money to steward for his glory. It's given to us by the Lord for his glory. And it is a gift. To live in the country we do is an incredible gift of grace from the Lord. How kind he is. But with that comes great responsibility as we realise he's given us so much to steward. And because the idol of money is such a factor, even in biblical times, it must be a massive factor for us today. And how quickly then this subtle idol can appear in our heart. And yet what is so clear in scripture is the idolisation of money has massive consequences. Clouds our view. We stop seeing life clearly. And ultimately we can't serve Jesus our money. So in effect, we're not serving Jesus at all. We're just serving money and having a nice Christian life in the process. Well, here's point four then, where it all comes together, if you've been tracking with me, which is the Saviour's remedy. Because this is how he addresses it, and this is how he pulls it all together. It is, in effect, a therefore moment. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the point. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants our hearts. He wants our whole being. He wants our inner being. He wants our passions and our will. And our insecurities, he wants it all to be cast upon him. He wants our hearts and he wants our whole being having been made by him to be lived for him. And yet the challenge is our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly trying to dethrone God and put something else in his place. Or minimally trying to set up two thrones in our hearts and deciding I'll have a few thrones in my hearts. I'll have a few things that we'll put in there and I'll try and find my joy and identity and security and purpose in. And the idol of money, Jesus says, is right up there. And so Jesus sits us down on a Galilean mountainside, describes for us how our hearts and treasures are intrinsically linked. For where your treasure is, there is your heart. It's like a person in a shadow. Where you are, that's there. Like synchronised swimmers. Where your treasure is, There is your heart. Well, I don't think that's the case with me, Lord. No, thanks for playing. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Fact. And so, his point then is this. Because your treasure and your heart is so linked, use then your treasure to point your hearts to things above. Don't invest in this life where Ultimately, you can acquire treasure, but moth and rust and thieves can get it. It'll be destroyed. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. It just doesn't happen. No one's taking anything with them. So Jesus says, I know that. 
So use your gifts, use your treasures to invest into the kingdom of God and use them understanding that your hearts and your treasures are so intrinsically linked. Use your treasures to point your heart to things above because when you give to things above, your hearts will come with it because they're like synchronized swimmers. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. Do you see that now? How caring of him. It ain't just about the money. It's not really what he's talking about here. He's talking about our hearts and helping us see your heart and your treasure are linked. So use your treasures to point your hearts to things above. Because if you don't, the idolatry of money will get you. So don't let it get you. Give. You know what, folks, in Sovereign Grace, every week the offering basket comes around and each and every week, many of you give by direct debit straight into the Sovereign Grace Ministries account. I want you to know, as your senior pastor, I'm so grateful for the way you give. You know, I think one of the things that Emma and I have talked about, and I know we've talked about it with the Woods too, as a group of people, you are some of the most generous people I've ever encountered in my life. Not only for the way you give to the church, but the way you care for each other outside of this. We've been on the receiving end of your generosity numerous times, as of many people in the church, and it is overwhelming. So please don't in any way receive this message as a critique or a criticism. It's not. You excel in this. But I want to fan it into flame all the more. And I want to come not from the premise of it's about the money. I want to come from the premise of God wants your hearts. And it's your hearts that I'm called to care for, not really your money. When we give, we have the opportunity to help build the church. And we want to build the church. And we want to build churches. We want to plant churches. It's one of the reasons why I asked Jeff Perswell to come out. It's one of the reasons why we're already in conversations about where we could possibly plant, who may be able to do that, how we prepare for that. I'm passionate about that. And when we give, it has a part to play in that. When we arrived in Australia, we had $250,000 given from America and primarily Britain. The average wage in Britain would be about $33,000 a year. But people are tithing. And they just say, you know what? It's all about Jesus. Take it. Plant churches. And if I could take you to them and you could meet them, you'd find they're not eating in the places we're eating and not living in the homes we're living in but they're passionate about Jesus. When we give, we have an opportunity to help build churches by God's grace here, but also in other places as well. Giving provides us with the God-given opportunity to help the poor and those in need, people genuinely in need. Giving, it gives us an opportunity from the Lord to do something that he loves. But more than that, giving provides us with a God-given opportunity to point our hearts to things above. So when that basket comes around, or when that bank statement comes in, and you're considering, how much shall I give to the church? I want to encourage you, use that as a moment to point your hearts to things above, to above and beyond yourself. It's a way of guarding your heart, which the proverb tells us to do. Guard your heart above all things, for it's the wellspring of life. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Do you get the links biblically? 
So my friends, I want to encourage you. You are doing a fine job in giving. And if you're giving well, keep doing it. And if you're not giving, every pastoral moment in me is concerned then for your heart, not primarily your money. Address that as biblically defined and then position your treasures to go where his treasures are, Christ. You may be concerned I can't afford it. You will never be able to afford it. That's why the Bible says giving is first fruits. Because if it's last fruits, you always run out. But when you make it a non-negotiable priority in your life, you give and you will find your hearts will go there too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the way you pastor us. Saviour, when we come to you, gather around as a family, Lord, although I'm preaching, in many ways I feel like I'm just sitting on the front row and you're addressing us from your word. Because you're caring for us as the good shepherd, as the saviour. Lord, you know us. You were involved in knitting us together in our mother's womb. You made the heart. You made the emotions. So you know how we're wired. And so, Lord, would we listen to you then as the creator, understanding the way we're wired, and would we heed your counsel? Lord, would our treasures point our heart to things above? Would our treasures point our heart to heaven? Would our treasures point our heart to the kingdom of God? And, Lord, would the money then be used to see the gospel go forward? And, Lord, I thank you for the way when we do this, We're guarding our hearts through your spirit. Thank you for illuminating that for us. How kind you are. Amen.